Chief. Yeah, just, uh, just wanted to mention after we spoke this morning. Yes. Uh, it was almost miraculous because that the sit I did right after that was definitely much much different. <laughs> so I thank you. Uh, Wonderful. Yeah. yeah there, there definitely was a difference. <coughs> I didn't say continue throughout the day, but that one was good. <laughs> 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 uh, but but the principle will work the rest of the time. Yeah, no, it was, it was simple, but it definitely uh, it carried a lot of uh, truth, and I think it uh, I think yeah. it's something I'm work with. So. Thank you. I'm very glad to hear that. the The principle here is that whenever there is something arising that uh, takes you away from the meditation object over and over again and you for one reason or another uh, you're you're just not able to ignore it and it just keeps coming back that the best thing that you can do is to take that as a meditation object but take it as an object in a way that puts you into a very objective relationship with it so, and that's basically the method for dealing with physical pain, with strong emotions, or with persistent thought processes or worries or things like that. Um, whenever they come up, you avoid getting into the content of a thought, and you avoid getting into the processing and storytelling behind an emotion. And if it's a, if it's a physical pain. You avoid getting caught in the eye cycle of my pain, I hurt, oh my gosh, what's happening to me? I have to do something about that. You know, get into an objective relationship with it and, and take, take whatever this is that keeps arising, take that as a meditation object. And in that way, it's not able to interrupt the process of your meditation. You're just able to keep on practicing. And very often, the effect will be, whether it's a physical pain or an emotion or a persistent thought, that uh, very often it will either become uh, so diminished in its intensity that you can ignore it and go back to just practicing in a normal way, or sometimes it will just disappear entirely. So, but even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't, even if that becomes your meditation object for the rest of the set, you are succeeding in continuing with the with the training of the mind and the cultivation of concentration and mindful awareness. So it's a very useful thing to remember because there's many types of things of that nature that they just they continue to be. Uh, uh, an obstacle to uh, practicing in the usual way. Yes? I have a very strange question. Can your mind be good to you? Because I was going through all this emotional stuff when we were sitting, and it was difficult stuff, but I kind of felt like this, the mind was being cool about it, or decent, or I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it besides <laughs> that. That it was doing it in a way that was Good, you know, it was helpful mm-hmm. and not overwhelming, and that it was kind of being considerate. Maybe I don't know. It sounds funny to say that, but it seemed like that. Yeah. Well, that, I, I, the way you're phrasing it seems a, a little bit strange. You know, you, can your mind be good to you? <laughs> That's what it felt like. <laughs> but I, I, I think I know. 
uh, well, I'm just guessing, but um, what you mean is that sometimes our mind gives us a a difficult time. It keeps presenting us with things that are unpleasant or difficult to deal with or challenging in some ways or another. Mm -hmm. But it's really nice sometimes when your mind decides not to do that and to, uh, even if it's presenting presenting thoughts and images uh, that are potentially difficult to deal with, presenting them in such a way that, that it's not disturbing. Yeah, that's kind of what was happening. It felt like it felt like it was very trustable. It felt like it was being very trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's wonderful when that happens. Yeah, yeah. You, you, uh, you know, as I've said many times, your your, your mind is this collection of, of different processes, and um, uh, sometimes there's one part of your mind which holds a particular view or attitude or insists on a particular direction of thinking, and some other part of your mind is actually working in opposition to that, and it creates an inner tension and a lot of difficulty. But uh, I think one of the benefits of, of meditation and, and mindfulness and observing those processes objectively is uh, it allows, uh, how can I put it, rather than having two mental processes duke it out while the rest of the rest of uh, your mind just sort of sits back and and uh, uh, you know feels unhappy about the situation <laughs> uh, instead there's more of a cooperative uh, process uh, taking place in the mind in general it, it's it's interesting <coughs> to the different aspects of your mind and the way that you can uh, uh, recognize things happening. Uh, you know, it, it's as if there's a different part of your mind that's associated with each one of your senses, and you probably notice that when you're meditating, that there's a part of your mind that basically its job is to listen to things and decide what's important and bring that into your attention. And there's some other part of your mind that seems to be uh, mostly processing uh, the bodily information, tactile information, pain and temperature and things like that. And most of the information it's getting, it kind of keeps to itself, but there's certain aspects of it that it feels like are important to present to consciousness and also to act upon. You know, it's like that, that itch on your nose. And, and the audit, that part of your mind thinks the appropriate response as soon as it detects it is to scratch. But if you're sitting and meditating and you've already formed the intention not to move, then, then you become really aware that there's this one part of your mind that wants to carry out this bodily action in response to this sensation. There's a part of your mind that does a lot of logical, rational thinking. And, well, there's also a part of your mind that's not necessarily all that rational, rational but it does a lot of yakety-yak, you know, and just sort of keeps a steady stream of commentary about, uh, you know, w- w- what it thinks might be currently uh, uh, <laughs> uh, relevant or of interest. And that is a part of your mind that produces emotions. 
And sometimes the emotions come up and you're not even sure what that has to do with. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with the part of your mind that was processing some uh, 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 discursive thought. Uh, it's just, it just seems to come up from there. But, so this, this experience of your mind as being a multitude of processes is an important understanding. It's an important way of recognizing how things happen within you, and it helps you to avoid that really uncomfortable kind of situation that we end up putting ourselves in when we hold to the idea of, of I as being the, the feeler and the doer and responsible for all of this, and it's my mind that I should be in control of it and direction and everything like that. It's, uh, more of a society, a collective. Uh, but it's nice when the collective works harmoniously, as you were saying. <laughs> and that's one of the things that, that's one of the benefits that comes from the practice. Anyone else have anything that, to mention of their experience of the day? Uh, I was touching upon this with you before. When you're in meditation, the which? When you're in a meditation, yeah. you're sitting on your cushion, and this, this whole plethora of thoughts and images and stories come to your mind. Uh, quite often, it's easy to see that it's all in your mind because you're sitting on, on a cushion, right? You know that right. there's no other external reality other than your thoughts. Uh, is there one piece of advice you can give us uh, in terms of when you get off that cushion? How to see your external reality as still an extension of that meditation? Like it's when your senses become engaged, then it seems like it's real now. Mm-hmm. Because yes. I see it, it must be real. Because I hear it, it must be real. So it's no longer it's uh, it's no longer easy to see that it's just a part of your mind, though. You get caught up in it. Yeah. yeah. So is there is there a technique or something that you would you could share with us in terms of a way of tricking ourselves into <laughs> a, a meditative approach? Yeah. Well, uh, the, there is a practice that uh, the Buddha taught, and uh, it's called the Four Applications of Mindfulness, or the Satipatthana Sutra. <clears throat> and it's something that you can, you can develop as a practice in your daily life. Basically, it's a way uh, of practicing mindfulness on a continuous basis, and it, it gives you a structure in, in which to focus that mindfulness so that you become, can become aware of exactly what you're saying. The four applications are <clears throat> mindfulness of the body, mindfulness <clears throat> of the feelings, by which is meant not sensations and not emotions, but feelings in the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Uh, mindfulness of mental states, which uh, you you have a great opportunity to familiarize yourself with different mental states when you're sitting on the cushion. You know, there's the there's the distracted mental state, and there's the dull mental state, the the confused mental state, and there's the mental states that are uh, colored by desire, and the mental states that are colored by aversion uh, of, of one form or another, uh, the, and the positive mental states, those that are clear and focused as opposed to distracted and diffuse, uh, and, and those that 
are, are viewed with a high level of mindful awareness rather than uh, 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 dullness and so forth. So you have an opportunity in sitting practice to become very familiar with the different kinds of mental states that your mind sort of cycles through at different times. So this is also something that you can become aware of in your daily life. But the culmination of these, the fourth, is mindfulness of your reality as being mind-created. And these all sort of build on each other. If you start off just practicing trying to remember to be mindful of the body uh, when you're not on the cushion. That brings you into the present. It's awareness of you know uh, what you're actually doing and feeling in the moment. Yeah. And, and also why. That's a part of it, too. Uh, I, I, could, uh, I could go on at quite length about the specific instructions in this sutra, but when he talks about mindfulness of the body... Uh, it involves mindfulness of your postures and also mindfulness of things like whatever you're doing, why you're doing it, if you're going forward, if you're going back, if you look to the right or look to the left, why are you doing it? You know, you're aware that you're doing it. Why am I doing it? Aware of what you're doing. And he, he goes through the whole when you're eating, when you're defecating, when you're this, when you're that, you know. It's just being, being aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it, but most especially of all of the different sensations that are associated with that. And if you can cultivate something of a habit of, of bringing yourself into the present, that by itself helps a lot to, to help you to have the kind of awareness that you're talking about. But then if you add to that, and you get a little skill with that, and you start noticing, well, what are the feelings? You know, what's pleasant, what's unpleasant? And the thing about practicing mindfulness of the feelings is uh, there's actually not three, there's five. There's, there's unpleasant sensations that are physical in origin, and there's unpleasant sensations that are mental in origin, and then likewise there's pleasant sensations that are physical and those that are mental. So this helps to bring you into an awareness of your mind's reaction to whatever is happening in the present at two different levels. You can see that the specific uh, bodily sensations that you experience or, or, or the sounds or the sights and so forth can be uh, pleasant or unpleasant. And the mind reacts to them and that generates its own quality of pleasantness and unpleasantness, which are sometimes not the same. Sometimes that which uh, sounds pleasant has an association with it that the mental reaction to is is unpleasant. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. And vice versa. And and of course we add neutral into the mix. But you get the idea. And then you then when you look at mental states, you start to notice how your mental state <coughs> is conditioned by these feelings. You have a few pleasant experiences physically and mentally or e or a preponderance of pleasant physical and mental experiences in a given period of time and the mental state you enter into reflects that it can be more of a of a, a joyful happy pleasant mental state or probably what we tend to be more aware of is when one unpleasant thing after another happens or one unpleasant 
thought or image or association arises after another, and we end up being in a negative mood, and in a negative mental state. But if you then are mindful of mental states, you can see how uh, the one mental state will cause you to notice those things which are more beautiful, pleasant, uh, uh, that are... Those, I would just point out that of all, all of the different things that you're experiencing sensations of in the body in a given moment, it's a tiny fraction of that that you're actually aware of. So there's a tremendous amount of selectivity. When you're in a good mood, you notice the good things. When you're in a bad mood, you notice everything that's wrong. And you can see that happen. You can see that, and you can also see as your mood shifts, you can see how you go from noticing one kind of thing to noticing another kind of thing. The other thing is you'll notice how your mental state actually influences your reaction to something. That if you're in a, a, a positive mental state, something that might actually be somewhat imple- unpleasant uh, in nature, uh, you, you, it, it feels neutral to you. And something that might have been a uh, little bit pleasant is very pleasant, and vice versa. Something that might have been pleasant is neutral, and anything, of course, that's unpleasant is very unpleasant. You know, so your mental state very much conditions, and this feedback feeds back back to the to the body. These bodily sensations that come into conscious awareness are the result partly of these mental states, and then uh, so these uh, mental states reinforce themselves, and then, of course, at the level of uh, of the way the mind interprets this, the perception that we have, are the reality that you're personally experiencing in any given moment is determined, of course, partly by the mental state in which you're experiencing it, but also all of the accumulated content of your mind, which is determining how you perceive things and what judgments you associate with them and everything else. Now, you can penetrate into this more and more deeply and become aware that really you are living in a mind-created reality continuously. So you can arrive at that awareness through these applications of mindfulness in your daily life. They're a way of getting at that same awareness that you have in sitting meditation and allowing it to become very clear and very concrete situations, you know, the sort of real-life situations that normally blind us to this awareness, are interpersonal interactions, which have a lot of emotional content. And, well, they also have a lot of ego involvement, and they have a lot of attachment to everything being real. I really am this kind of person, and he really is that kind of person. And... The significance of what he says and does, uh, and the judgments that arise out of that, and everything. This is your reality. That's the reality that you live in. And you can start to see, even as it's unfolding, even as you find the words coming out of your mouth, you're seeing that this is coming out of aversion. This is coming out of defensiveness of my sense of self. That I don't even, I'm not even seeing this person the way they really are. I'm seeing a projection of my mind that I'm reacting to. So you can come into that awareness in, in that way. That's what I would suggest. <laughs>
That's a lot. I'll apply right now. What's that? I'll apply right now. But actually, you know, that's as a formal practice. But more than anything else, it's simply the mindfulness, the mindful awareness that you're able to practice in in the specialized circumstance of sitting meditation. You you can arouse it and you can practice it all of the time. It's just a question of doing it. It's just a question of doing it. That's all. And the more you do it the easier it is to do and also the the more you're naturally drawn to do it you know it's uh, you come to really not like those times where you're not mindful and you recognize your non-mindfulness and it it's it's you know distasteful and, and you actually prefer to be in a state of as much mindful awareness as you can. It's much more satisfying and gratifying and allows you to see things the way they really are. I was talking at this, uh, talking about uh, the way that. Uh, the way that our minds determine our experience of reality quite a bit on Thursday night. So both Peggy and Terry and uh, well and Adam have all had a big <coughs> dose of this very recently. But just a little refresher for you. Mm-hmm. I love a question, but the other thing is I'll just continue on. I'll just get on roll and just keep on talking about uh, But I'd, I'd really, really like to know what there might be that uh, is, that someone would like some answers to or some, some understanding of. This might sound like a weird question, but <laughs> I have a question about... Like you were talking about how like recognizing like you're putting a projection onto somebody, and I've had that happen before, and then like what do you think? But um, it's this question of how you know when you're being accurate or not, you know? And I think you can tell, but I'm not sure if I totally trust that or not. <laughs> that uh, sense that I can yes. tell, because I really do think you can tell. I think it's like it's clear, but then some at some level I don't trust that. Like, am I really right, or am I just fooling myself again? <laughs> well, uh, let me give you the scary answer. And the scary answer is, you're always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's the point of all this then? <laughs> well, uh, you're, you're always wrong, but then you're always right. Uh, how you see another person, that is your reality. And what you were suggesting in your question is that there is a, there is some external reality that is universally true, you know, and and that your personal personal reality is some approximate approximation <laughs> of that, and uh, you, you and so 
theoretically then, you could eventually come to having your perception correspond to this ultimate reality of the way things are. And um, this, this gets deep right away, but that's why it's a scary answer, is there isn't, in terms of another person, there isn't a way they really are. There's the way that they think they are, but that's only the way that they think they are right now. It's not the way that they thought they were yesterday or that the way that they think they are tomorrow. But the way but you'll you'll never be able to see them that way. You'll never be able to see that person the way that they think they are. And every single other person that you encounter is going to see that person in yet again a different way. Mm-hmm. And so you know, as to the question of how is that person really, there's not the kind of answer that we would like to imagine there is. Now, on the other hand, there is something. We all have these personal realities that we live in. That's the way it is. It will always be that way. Um, And things never will really be the way that we project them in our mind because that's that's the limitation of the mental projections which make up our reality. So we all live in our own personal reality. And that's I think a good way to regard a good label to put on it. It's personal reality. It's not ultimate reality mm-hmm. uh, and it's not even uh, I, I, I wouldn't even want you to say it's an illusion because to say it's an illusion is once again to to posit that that you know there is something that is more real than that. It is your reality, but it's your personal reality. Now, there's something that we could call consensual reality. That's where our personal realities start to overlap. And I think what you're really saying, whether you realize it or not, when you see somebody in a particular way and how can you trust whether they really are that way or not a better way to put it is I'm seeing them this way in terms of my personal reality and can can I bring that my personal reality into an alignment with a consensual reality which you'd have to define in terms of that other person and those other third and fourth and fifth parties who also know that person and who also know you. Isn't that what you mean? That you? I don't use know. I feel like a different question. I feel like it's a sort of a different question or something. I'm not sure. Oh, is that right? Well, that's because fine. I was thinking of this experience I had where I was, met somebody at a workshop. Yeah. And she was an older black woman, and I was listening to her, and I realized I was doing all these stereotypes, you know. Yeah. And then. And suddenly it just changed, and then I felt like I was just listening to her, and it felt really different. Yeah, right. But it was like, I think it's possible to know that, you know what I mean? It's like I noticed the difference. It was clear, like, when that happened, it was really clear what that it was different, you know? Right. So I don't know. I, I think that's the same thing that I'm talking about. You saw her in terms of stereotypes. Mm-hmm. So that was your personal reality of her, right? But mm-hmm. then... And then I realized it was happening. You realized, well, <laughs> she's not like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and now what, what that means is uh, that, yeah, the, you had seen her in a particular way. You, you had 
projected an image on her, which was certainly not an image that she was living up to, right? So it didn't correspond to her reality. <laughs> and, but also, what you're also saying is you, you were perhaps jumping to conclusion that, that she was this way, and that was a flawed perception. Mm. And in terms of consensual reality, that if you could have tapped into three or four other people's perception of her, then you would have realized that it was a flawed perception. So there's also, when we talk about consensual reality, okay, just to explain what I mean here, so you can understand the ramifications of this. Uh, you know, there's that old story of the, the, uh, the, the rope that's mistaken as a snake, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. In the moment that you see the rope as a snake, your personal reality is that that's a snake. You'll feel fear. You may pick up a club and start beating on the rope <laughs> and everything else like that. But <clears throat> then what happens is you look again and it doesn't move. Maybe it doesn't bleed where you hit it with the club. <laughs> Whatever. What you find is that there's a lack of, of uh, consistency. Uh, okay, so your perception in one moment doesn't correspond to your future and subsequent perceptions. Right? So that's just within your own mind. And so you could say your initial perception was flawed, but your subsequent perception of it as a rope was more accurate. At least it was more consistent with your own previous and future ways of perceiving. But the fact is that what you saw was no more a rope than it was a snake. Rope is only a particular mm-hmm. label and idea, but it has associated with it a lot of concepts that give it a certain consistency. And this is what's important about consensual reality. To live in the world with other people, we've got to achieve the same kind of consistency between our perceptions and theirs. If we don't have the same kind of pers- consistency, mm-hmm. then then we have a flawed perception and it sets us outside of that. And that's when we would say that we would say or they would say about us that we were wrong we didn't understand. That, that but why, why would you assume your perception was flawed? Because most people don't. Well, most people start off. Mindful. So if you're mindful, is your perception flawed because it doesn't match everybody else's? Quite, yeah. kind of well, and it might, you know, sometimes you'll be outside of consensual reality, and yeah, you're right. You, you, <laughs> you might be the only one that sees things in uh, um, a way that. Remember, there's not an ultimate reality, but there's a way that corresponds to perhaps a larger consensual reality. I mean, what would be your standard if you see something one way and everybody else sees it differently? How would I decide whether it was right or wrong, you mean? Yeah. How would I be like, wait a right. minute, that's wrong? I mean, say, for example, you're convinced that this billboard downtown is not just carrying an advertisement for whatever, cars, but it carries a divine message, and everybody else thinks you're crazy. <laughs> How would you decide? <laughs> How would you decide? I mean, you might be right. I guess I would ask why, would, why did it matter, and what did it mean, and I guess I would just look at it that way, rather than saying, is it really a divine message? I would kind of be like, 
what's this all about? Well, that's avoiding the answer, though. But <laughs> yeah. You could say. I don't know, because I felt like sometimes I had to stand by things that other people didn't agree with, you know? And I felt oh, like yeah, I didn't right. feel like. I felt like it was better to stand by them. I mean, I didn't feel like I was mm -hmm. being crazy. I felt like they weren't understanding, you know? Right. So, but I'm not totally sure what it is that made me say that, you know, because. Because there's been other times I've like sworn I didn't do something, and then I remember it's like, oh my god, I guess I did. <laughs> I've had that experience too of being totally wrong and being sure that I was right, and then realizing like, oops. Well, you know, you, you, it's it's always possible that you're the only one that's right. But I think what you're going to find most of the time is that you're going to take reference to cons consensual reality interacting with other people and at some level, and you may find that the group of people that you're in, you disagree with everybody there. But uh, if it's an important issue, you'll probably ultimately decide that you're correct or mistaken based on uh, on the larger consensual reality. <laughs> I'm just thinking of issues that people totally avoid that I've had to deal with. And I'm yeah. Like, well, I have to deal with this stuff, and everybody else avoids it, but I just have to deal with it because it's in my history. You know? Balance. So I don't quite yeah. understand that, you know, like like some of the abuse stuff, if I say something to somebody about this, they're just like, people just want to run, they don't want to deal with that stuff. But at the same time, I can't say because a lot of people just want to run from that stuff that I sh don't have to deal with it. Or that I'm wrong, or that, uh, now how you know is what that, I mean? That's how is that what we're talking about, though? I don't see that. Because it doesn't really fit, like, a lot of people it doesn't fit in their reality and they don't want to hear it. They really, like, like it kind of jars them because it... Because it's like the world isn't fair, and it's like this recognition of how the world can be unfair, and it's like this recognition of what things people can do to each other. And a lot of people really, they just kind of run from that whole issue because it kind of threatens their sense of safety in the world or their sense well, of justice. Well, that's or true. Yeah, that's true. But now so what, that you're happens, talk and well, in a sense, what you're talking about like is how. I'm against the consensual reality in a certain sense by uh, staying true to this experience yeah. and saying, well, yeah, this really happened, you know. I don't think so. I think the larger consensus would agree with your point of view. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is you're picking out a subset of people who, in their personal reality, they try to construct their personal reality in a way that makes them comfortable. And that's an important thing to recognize. We all do that. Mm -hmm. We avoid things. We deny things oh, because, yeah, they, yeah, because they make us uncomfortable. Yeah. So it's really, you're really saying the same thing. You're saying that you're, what you're telling me is that you recognize that there's certain issues about which some people stubbornly cling to a, a, a view that is not supported in terms of consistency, that, that factor of consistency, or consensual reality, the larger consensual reality. Somebody may deny the Holocaust like that uh, British bishop, but... Mm -hmm. But there is evidential consistency, and there's the views of the rest of the people in the world. So that person holds, in their personal reality, they hold a view. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, that's a digression. Yeah, it's a confusing yeah. question. It's kind of like, wow, how do you decide? <laughs> yes? John, can you comment on, you, you say that there's no ultimate reality. Yeah. Uh, there's no ultimate reality in terms of, <coughs> well, let's put it this way. It, the only thing that we will ever know 
as individuals in terms of the reality that we live in (coughs) is a reality that's created by and projected by our mind as a result of the sensory experiences that we have. You mean uh, there's like a a lack of an ultimate reality that's coming from something other than your mind? Okay. Now, (coughs) two things here. First of all, um, in terms of what we can and cannot know, we cannot know anything beyond what our mind generates on the basis of the sensory information that comes to us. Okay? Now, just to, to illustrate the degree that that's, that, that is true, uh, look at how using only our raw senses we understand the world, and then how by extending the power of our senses through scientific instruments, we've discovered that that which we thought we understood is not what we thought it was at all. That, you know, we see colors, but there's no such thing as colors. There's a continuous spectrum of of electromagnetic radiation. And it's only because of the structure of our eye and our brain that we perceive colors. There's pigments in your eye that respond to certain wavelengths and not others, and that's why you see colors. Um, to us, warmth and cold are very solid realities. But through the extension of our senses with scientific instruments, we realize that there's no such thing as warmth and cold. There's just greater and lesser degrees of, of random motion of the uh, components that make up objects. That you know, Atoms and molecules are jiggling around, and if they jiggle real fast, they feel hot because energy is transferred to our nerve endings. And if they don't jiggle so fast, then we lose that, we lose that same kind of energy and it feels cold. Uh, things look solid. This looks solid. But over the last uh, century, we've come to realize that this is uh, 99.99999% empty space, spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the other tiny part of it was, <laughs> thought it was small but discrete particles, and then find out that that, that doesn't fit with, uh, uh, we, we keep investigating, and well, it's little points of space-time that are curved. Well, that's not even something that we can wrap our minds around very easily. <laughs> and then more recently that uh, it's all the result of some vibrating uh, 11-dimensional strings, you know. That's definitely not accessible to our senses and our minds. But also, lest we fall into the illusion that, well, uh, we're almost at the point where we understand what this is. And it's just a matter of time. The, the deeper that we go into these things, the greater the mystery of what it what it is. You know, uh, quantum physics tells us that actually there's nothing there at all, except uh, a collection of 
possibilities and probabilities. And it only takes on the appearance of actually existing in a particular way when we become, when, when there's a, a, a conscious observer of it. Now that's a pretty outrageous idea right there. Take away the conscious observer and it never becomes one thing as opposed to another. It continues to be a, an infinite number of, of possibilities. So, so we can't really, we can't really epistemologically, in terms of our knowledge, we can't expect to have a knowledge of whatever it is outside of our mind that produces the sensations out of which our mind creates all this illusion, right? Well, illusion it creates it creates our mental reality. It's dependent upon the kind of mind we have too. Imagine a, a, a frog with a frog's brain and the kind of reality that a frog mind generates. And then, if you can, just project yourself into uh, maybe uh, 10 million years in the future and suppose that it's possible that the evolutionary process that's resulted in the human brain continues as it is. What kind of reality are those beings going to perceive? So, okay, so that's... Can, can you agree that there is this problem of knowledge of an ultimate reality? Mm-hmm. We, we really... That's all I was getting at. It was just obviously the fact that there is a lack of anything solid. Would that not be, from your perspective, ultimate reality? The lack of it? Isn't that a theory, though? It's like a scientific theory. Um, <laughs> is it an experience? It's, it's a theory, but but everything. But that's the point, really, is that everything that we hold to be the case is just a theory, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's one theory, and that this is a solid object is another theory. Mm-hmm. You know. And uh, it's what we make of the two. It's, the much more useful theory for us on a day-to-day basis is that that's a solid object. Mm-hmm. But the other, the other theory and the validity that we see in it makes us realize that that this appears to be a solid object and is useful in that way uh, is is really uh, a reflection of the limitations of uh, our our ability to truly know what mm-hmm. is. Now that's one. Now, what what sort of ultimate reality might there be, considering that we can't know it, whatever it is? Well, you see what we do, and this is this this starts to get to to the the kind of things that we're trying to have uh, to obtain insight into, so that we can awaken and uh, overcome all the suffering that is the result of the illusions that we're trapped within. What, without even needing to, we, we have no need to know what ultimate reality is, only what it isn't. So, the way that we normally perceive things is that there is exists a universe of substantial uh, relatively uh, persisting objects which uh, exist independently of the mind 
and that I, me, the knowing individual here, somehow am in the middle of this universe and I have a part of me, the body and the brain, that is a part of all this physical stuff and behaves consistently with the rest of it. And then there is the mind. And uh, I can sort of separate this sense of, of self from the body, but I'm still attached to this idea of the mind, the mental. You know, this is, this is something separate. So our normal perception is a world made up of things out there. And then there is a me in here on the mental plane. And that the two are independently existent of each other. External reality is independently existent, and I am this independently existent self. Is this not the way everybody perceives everything? You know, I've, I've never met anybody that doesn't think of it that way, ultimately. But it's not... And of course, when you look at it that way, this I, this self, uh, experiences some pleasure from some of these things and some pain from other one of these things. And I want to be happy and I don't want to suffer. And so therefore, I'm motivated as much as I can to manipulate this independently existing separate world. And so that's what we do. We... we we work away all the time trying to manipulate this external world to, to minimize our suffering and to make ourselves happy. And what brings us to become interested in some kind of spiritual pursuit is at some level of our mind, we realize that this really isn't working. I mean, as long as you think this is working, you're just going to continue with it, you know. Buy, buy a, a newer, flashier sports car and you know, uh, make more money and spend more money and, and make yourself happy in, in that way. But it's all doomed in the end. Everything we get passes away. All that's near and dear is, is doomed to pass away. Um, that the only thing that we can be for certain of is that in every day that we live, there will be some measure of, of pain and loss, and that eventually we will, and that we will get sick, we'll get old, and eventually we'll, we'll die. That's that's the only thing that's really certain. What we learn from experience is that uh, our ability to manipulate this world in order to make ourselves happy is not very successful. So, this is not a good. This this is not a successful view of things. So we can take another view of the way things are. We can, and this, this is basically what Buddha did when he sat down under that tree 2,500 years ago. He said, okay, <laughs> what's really going on here? And he came into the present moment. And what's really here in this present moment? All there is, is sensation, and the perceptions that my mind generates out of that 
out of those perceptions, or out of those sensations. The feelings of pleasant and unpleasant that accompany both the sensations and the perceptions that generate, and my consciousness of them. And then whatever volitions that arise as a result of the experience in the moment. And that's all there is in this now. And that in fact, as far back as I can see, that's all there's ever been, is a stream of consciousness in which there's been consciousness of sensations. There has been the, based on accumulated past experience, projections of what the significance of those sensations are, and experiences of pleasantness and unpleasantness, or neither, in some cases, associated with that. And then the arising of desire, if it's pleasant, or aversion, if it's unpleasant, and the motivation to move out of this present into a future moment where hopefully there will be less suffering and more pleasure. You realize that this is this is the reality that's there. It's not about whether those things out there really exist in and of themselves, but that the reality that I exist in is one that my mind is creating. And the only hope for being uh, happy or being free from suffering is going to do going to have to do with uh, with the mind that is creating that reality. He recognized that the mind creates that reality based on on its past, on its pre-existing accumulation of experience and of habitual ways of understanding and interpreting things and of reacting to things, the intentions and the actions that arise out of that, that they all leave their imprint on the mind. And so you arrive in this moment with that collection of mental formations. Then when sensations occur, then that determines the nature of the perception that you have, the reality that you exist in. But then your experience in this moment and how you respond to it, that is altering that whole collection of mental formations. And so in that sense, your response to what arises in this moment is going to have a significant effect on what you will experience in subsequent moments. But you're creating your future in the present just as your present was created by your past. And it's your mind that is doing this whole process. So, as to the nature of ultimate reality, this is the empirical reality of what a person is. This stream of consciousness with these events happening in each moment. All that we can say about ultimate reality is that it's definitely not what the mind is projecting. It's empty of being, of having any nature of being the way that we projected it. 
because all that we are engaging with is the internal dance of our mind's own projection. That's that's all there is. So whatever ultimate reality is, it's empty of these things that the mind projects. Now, there's some other things that we can say about it too. But sorry, you were going to make a comment. Oh, okay. Um, we can we can realize that on the one hand that through uh, through the same kind of logical processes that we uh, deduce more about the nature of whatever the reality is uh, outside of the, the mind through science you know we, the, the source of our sensations this is the question what is the source of our sensations and there really is there, there's two things there is that which we experience and there's the source of that which we experience and the thing that's certain is we don't we can't actually know the source of that which we experience okay but for some things that we can infer and deduce about that and for example it becomes obvious through direct experience that sensations are constantly in flux that there is only impermanence within the realm of sensation and that it is repeating patterns that the mind grasps onto and generates the concepts of things out of. And the more fully we come to know and understand this, the more we realize that the whole idea of separateness and thingness in terms of reality is just another one of those projections of the mind. That whatever ultimate reality is, it is it, uh, we can deduce and infer that it is absolutely interconnected and there is the, and, and there is no separation of it into thingness. It's a, a continuity of constant flux and interaction and interconnectedness. And our, our meager science confirms that, that the butterfly flaps his wings in Hong Kong and there's a thunderstorm in, uh, in London. And, uh, and it, it may take uh, it may take the lifetime of the universe, but something that happens uh, uh, on one side of the universe affects what happens on the other. You know, I, uh, I don't know if you know this, but in, in, in physics, uh, it's been demonstrated that uh, that particles that have absolutely no form of continuity that we can understand are linked in ways that uh, for forever. They can be on the opposite sides of the universe. Two, two electrons on opposite sides of the universe and what happens to one of them immediately affects the state of the other. Amazing, right? But so we, through deduction and inference, we know that whatever this is that produces our sensations consists of total interconnectedness and the idea of separability into thingness is just something that our mind does to it. Right? Uh, we could also look at the other half of the equation, the mind, and we might, and we can find evidence for something similar. Although this is much less uh, uh, rec- broadly recognized, and maybe I could talk about that later if you wanted to. 
But uh, the other thing I just want to point out to you, when we say that whatever it is that's the cause of our sensations is unknowable, that's even true. Some people adopt the view, and it's just a view. They say that, uh, that well, we seem to experience sensations in our sleep when we dream. And when we wake up, we know that there is no actual external physical cause for those sensations. Therefore, we have no basis to assume that any sensation we have ever experienced has an external cause. Therefore, it could all be only the mind. And you're still left with the question, okay, fine. So, the mind creates those sensations as in a dream. But why and how? Where does it come from? And people say, well, it's karma. It's your karma that makes you experience those sensations. But you see, that's just putting a different label on exactly the same thing. It doesn't matter what label you call it. It doesn't matter. It, it's the same. It's something that's unknowable. The only thing that you can say about it is it's I don't know what it is, but it causes these sensations, <laughs> right? So whether it's physical causality or whether it's karmic causality, it's kind of irrelevant. Those are intellectual games that are not important. But there is the fact that in any moment we have sensations, and at least when we are uh, in this state of consciousness that we call waking consciousness, those sensations occur according to a causality of their own that we are not capable of altering. In a dream, you can jump out of the window and you won't break your legs. But when you're awake, if you jump out of the window, you're going to suffer the consequences. The sensations in that continuous series of sensations, the sensations that arise are going to follow, follow a chain of causality that is independent of your intention and your ability to control. So, so there is, 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 is something that is definitely outside of mind and intentionality that is the source of sensation. So call it whatever you want, and think of it however you want. The fact is, all that you can say with certainty about it is that it's empty of the nature of, of having the nature of what the mind projects on it, and that's that's the emptiness of it. Yeah. Isn't like another way to look at this, and I'm not sure if it's as complete as the way you were looking at it, but it seems like another way to look at it is to think about like like it seems like one of the central things that causes people problems is mistaking ideas, thinking that their ideas are quote-unquote real, mm-hmm. and, and confusing, just having this wrong idea about thoughts and ideas, yes. and that it's just really, really important to learn that that's not, that your ideas are like theories. And that's <laughs> right, all your, ideas, really all your ideas are theories. And the one idea, the one idea that we really need to learn to understand as a theory is the idea uh, that, of uh, 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 I, I, I mm me, the self. Yourself is something that your mind creates. You know, and, and there's actually a much greater degree of legitimacy to 
the illusion of solidity that your mind creates about this object than there is about the, the self that your mind creates. Because we feel and we tend to believe that our self is a real and persistent thing, but it's a creation of the mind, and when you examine it closely, it's constantly changing. Mm-hmm. It's not permanent in the least. Yeah. I just point out another little something. You know, if you, uh, I, I was telling you that whatever the isness is that's responsible for the sensations that we experience, whether it's some unknowable physicality, which is actually dubious in terms of of modern physics and and quantum theory, but if it's some unknowable physicality or whether it's some unknowable karmic process, it's absolutely internally interconnected and consistent, and we can see that. The other half of this that we experience, the mental half, uh, out of your sensations, you create these mental formations that are responsible for your uh, experiences, for your uh, perceptions. And you are conscious of these, and you're conscious of the feelings associated with them. So, of the five things that make us up, you know, there's the sensations, that's one. The other four are all mental. Now, we feel mentally as completely separate as we do physically. Do we not? My mind is my mind. It's separate. I don't know what's going on in your mind, but it's sure as heck not what's going on in my mind. Or is it? Anyway. But um, by examining the physical, we can come to realize that there's an illusoriness to this. That, that uh, I mean, at, at a particular level, uh, of course, every atom and molecule that makes up your body is, is lost and replaced continuously. Um, we rebreathe the same air and, and re-drink and excrete the same water and so on and so forth. Uh, we feel like we're separate from the atmosphere, but the air, there's my body, and there's my skin, and that's the boundary. The atmosphere is not my body, but you know what's inside my skin is. But they're still very much interconnected. If we were to remove the atmosphere like that, what would happen to your body? It would explode. <laughs> <laughs> you rely on the atmosphere to kind of hold everything together in place. You know? So we realize physically everything is interconnected, even though there seems to be this separateness and we make these distinctions. So we might wonder, in the realm of the mental, is there anything there that... Uh, might be similar to that. Well, I can tell, of, of, of the four mental things, let's just look at those. Your mental formations, those are unique to you. You've collected them, you've stored them in your, your, your mind, and they determine your experience of the moment. So your perceptions that result from that, they're pretty much unique to you as well. 
although there is this consensual reality of perception that we talked about, probably the most unique thing about you, the, 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 the most separate and self thing about you that you can identify when you, when you look very carefully, uh, would be that unique, complex set of mental formations consisting of all of your memories and concepts and ideas and what you think the world is and how you feel about this and that and all your judgments and stuff. That's more uniquely you than anything else. Uh, Next after that, of course, are your perceptions because they're determined by that. But with the perceptions, uh, we do have a consensual reality. We go to the feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Well, hey, you know, there's not a lot of variety in here. Something's either pleasant or it's unpleasant, or it's neither. Okay. What depends on who you're asking. And? <laughs> some people love hot stuff, and I can't stand it. What's that? <laughs> I said some people love really spicy food, and I don't like it. Yeah, <laughs> so right. It varies from a little bit, anyways. It varies a bit. What you experience as pleasant may not be the same as what somebody else mm-hmm. experiences as pleasant. But pleasant and unpleasant are pretty simple things, and mm-hmm. does it not... See, it seems to me, it's hard for me to imagine that that out of these three, pleasant, unpleasant, and neither, that your experience of pleasant could be particularly different than mine, mm-hmm. or of unpleasant, or, or of neither. So here we're starting to get something that's fairly universal. Now let's go to consciousness. Now there's different kinds of consciousness, and there's different degrees of consciousness. You know, there's visual consciousness, and there's tactile consciousness, and there's auditory consciousness. They only differ from each other in the kind of object that they take. And there's different degrees of consciousness. But consciousness itself, and this is something you get to know really really well through meditation, you get really familiar with consciousness. And there is a sameness about consciousness, about the illuminating aspect of mind that results in knowing the knowing of anything or everything or or whatever. And can you imagine, I mean, it looks to me like you're conscious. You could, you might not be. You might all be really well-programmed robots that act (laughs) But it looks to me like you experience the same kind of consciousness that I do. And it is as far as I can tell, inconceivable that your consciousness is any different than mine. So there is a certain universality on the mental plane of this experience of consciousness. Perhaps, perhaps there is an interconnectedness between uh, on the mental plane as well. If there was, this would mean that it would indeed be possible for uh, certain highly evolved beings, for Buddhas, to know the mind of another. Would it not? I've got my massive mental formations and you've got your massive mental formations. But if indeed mentality is an interconnected unity in the same sense that physicality is, and if with the proper instruments we can look at where things are now and figure out how they came to be that way, where they they were in the past, and also figure out 
where they're going to be in the future based on that interconnectedness. If mentality were interconnected in the same way, it's theoretically possible, at least, that there may be a means by which what is in your mind could be perceived by the mind of a Buddha. It could be that the contents of every mind that has ever existed somehow still have left an imprint on mentality that could be accessible in some way. And as a matter of fact, the Buddha said, when he became enlightened, that he sat there and he reviewed past lives for eons, and that he reviewed the lives of all different kinds of beings, and that this helped to under- helped him to understand the nature of the way that things really were. So that might seem absolutely fantastical, mm-hmm. but if you accept the possibility of the same sort of uh, ultimate interconnectedness and continuity on the mental plane as uh, seems fairly evident to exist on the physical, and why not, then in theory at least it does become possible. It becomes possible even that something of that mass of mental formations that Uh, you have built up and collected that determines your reality uh, moment by moment might even in some form or another be accessible to uh, another consciousness in the in the future even after your body has passed away or even while even while your body uh, still exists interesting idea don't you think and if you've ever pondered the problem, well, the Buddha said there is no such thing as a self. And the Buddha said people said that there's such a thing as rebirth. How on earth could that be? Doesn't that seem like a contradiction? Many people have thought so and puzzled over that and tried to figure out how that could be the case. But it becomes much less puzzling if you see the interconnectedness uh, on uh, a level of mentality that the self that you are only has a transient existence. As a matter of fact, it's constantly changing. Every experience you have changes this unique mass of mental formations that makes you up. That mass of mental formations, at least to some degree, is dependent upon your physical brain. And when your body dies and your brain breaks up, you know, some of that internal structure of it is going to have to go with it. But that doesn't mean that it can't continue to uh, carry on in some form or another. Um, in the form of predispositions, if the de- even if the detail is lost, the predispositions might be uh, might continue on. It might be accessible in some way or another. You know. The way you are physically and many of your psychological traits, you probably realize, are the result of the genes that you inherited from your mother and father, right? And do we not often see that a person, we can say, he's just like his grandfather in that way. Or 
she's like not just her mother, but her grandmother, a great. There, there's this continuity. And we're very comfortable with recognizing that, yeah, we inherited genes from these people, this mother and father and these grandfathers and grandmothers, and all these great father grandfathers and great grandmothers, and that accounts for these characteristics that we see now in our bodies and in our behaviors, because behavioral characteristics are also genetically determined. Yet we don't run around trying to figure out, well, does that mean that my, how could my mother be reborn as me? Because she's still alive. And we're never puzzled by that at all. But we have no problem with the idea that something was passed on that had a determining effect. And so what happened, What you create on the plane of mentality uh, may very well serve in some way as a substrate for the formation of, of uh, future conscious beings. And if it doesn't, it doesn't matter. The important thing is to overcome suffering in this life. To awaken in this life. You know. And whoever comes next, it would be really great if you could leave them a legacy of an awakened life. But if not, they'll just have to keep on working on it on their own. Your concern is this life, this time. Yes? Well, um, you said a Buddha were evolved or something. What is that? What is that? What is higher consciousness? I, you know, they used to throw that term around a lot, and I've sort of forgotten all about it as I sit around meditating. You know, I just I'm worried about the next thought that comes up. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I've totally forgotten about that. Those categorize people categorizing certain things as higher consciousness. And what is it? I mean, is it just I don't know, more pure and. Higher consciousness is <clears throat> its consciousness that is not obscured and defiled by delusion and confusion. The degree to which we overcome ignorance, replace ignorance with understanding and gain wisdom, we are At that, in that way, we are uh, purifying our consciousness, and it becomes a higher consciousness. Just as you know, if you clean the the lens of a flashlight, and so the light shines more more strongly, or you remove uh, obscuring obstacles in between, then the illumination from that light becomes stronger and purer. And that is, <clears throat> it, it, that is the meaning of higher consciousness. You know, we all have the Buddha nature. Well, what is the Buddha nature? The Buddha nature is nothing but a consciousness that, a, a consciousness uh, that the obscurations of ignorance and delusion have been removed from. That's it. That's what awakening means. That's one of one one of the ways of understanding awakening is that we eliminated the confusion and delusion from from that consciousness. And if, in the sense that I was talking about, you see the, this that we all have 
the same consciousness. Your consciousness is not different than a Buddha's consciousness. It's just buried under a, 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 a dung load of uh, delusion. And if you clean the crystal, so to speak, you know, if you overcome the ignorance in which you're trapped, you are conscious when you are overwhelmed by uh, greed and lust, and when you commit harmful and unwholesome actions out of greed and lust, you're conscious, the consciousness is there, but that consciousness is so defiled. And your experience, your experience of the greed and the lust and the actions and then the suffering that comes after that, this, this is all the defiled consciousness. But the Buddha nature, the pure consciousness, it's still there. You know, it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm clean under my dirt. Right? <laughs> I was thinking you could see it in a different way, too, because it's like the physical metaphor. Like when you climb up higher, you see more. Like if you're down on the ground, you just see what's around you, and then you climb the tree, and you see bigger. And like when you see a bigger picture of things, when you become more mindful, when you become like more objective, you see this bigger picture of everything. Yep, that's absolutely so that's like true. Another that's another way, a very, very good way of putting it. I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah, um, another way of talking about this whole thing is our problem is that we're trapped in this illusion of self. Uh, we could say. Uh, you know uh, what is the uh, what is the ultimate defilement that we that our consciousness is subject to? What what is the, the the greatest ignorance that we have? The greatest ignorance we have is the belief that we are this separate self. And if you take if you take a universe and you set apart one side of it with a boundary and say inside of this is self and outside of this is not self and then you create a war on the boundary between the two then this this is the kind of situation that each of us creates uh, and the self is the illusion that is more than anything else responsible for all of the other problems it's at the root of it the craving which manifests as desire and aversion and hatred comes as a result of this separation of the wholeness into the self and not self, you know, and the idea that the not self can be exploited to the benefit of the self, or that the self can be threatened by the non self. But what happens if you eliminate that boundary, which you can do in two ways. You can keep expanding the boundary until eventually the whole universe is included in it. Or you can keep shrieking the boundary until finally there's nothing left in the compartment called self. The end result, though, is the idea of self makes no sense anymore. Self requires a duality and a separateness. There has to be a self and a not-self. But when you come to this place of wholeness, you've done exactly that, as you were saying. You've gone to a higher level. Mm -hmm. A consciousness that has transcended the illusion of self is at a much higher level. It's at a universal level, not at a limited hmm. personal level. But it was interesting when you gave that description of self because it's like the body does that. Mm -hmm. The, the body, body continually that. determines whether it, what 
from the outside should come in and what from the inside should go out and that's right whether this yeah. bacteria belongs here or whether I have to kill it you know and their body is like constantly doing yeah. that and it's constantly yeah. like killing bacteria and it's constantly like <laughs> Absolutely, rejecting yeah. poisons and it's mm-hmm. kind of, you know what I mean it's like mm-hmm. this continuous process and you could maybe think of self as the mind's way of doing that mm-hmm. and like I'm not saying that one therefore shouldn't think about dissolving that idea, but it's just kind of an interesting analogy. It's like, geez, I wonder if it's kind of a similar function in a way or something. Well, and it, it, it's a similar function for the same reason. I mean, you know, it's not some kind of accident that our minds generate this idea of self. Mm-hmm. Our minds are programmed, you know, those same genes that we were talking about before, they cause your <laughs> mind to be wired in, or your brain to be wired in a particular way, so that there's a part of your... The, there's a part of your brain that produces a part of your mind whose total responsibility is to continuously generate this idea of self. And it does that uh, and, and for, it, for exactly the same reasons and in exactly the same way that the body does. The body creates a boundary, the skin regulates what goes in and what goes out, very selective. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's exactly the same thing. And so... This is how life works. This is uh, this is Mother Nature's great plan. And it's just that, you know, some of us decided that you know, we'd like to opt out. But at a physical level, it wouldn't make any sense to do that, even if it does make sense on a mental level. On which level? At a physical level, it wouldn't make sense for the it, body to stop rejecting. The body wouldn't survive. It would, if it that's didn't. right. The body would not if survive. If it didn't pick and choose, the body wouldn't and, survive. And not only that, you know, it's a question that's of no longer... A, a person whose mind ceased to generate <coughs> the idea of self would not be able to survive. A Buddha is not somebody who who can't tell himself from anybody else, mm-hmm. but he doesn't believe in the illusion of it. He knows this is just a mental formation. But it's just a, the idea of self—it's a, a mental formation. It's a useful one, mm-hmm. you know. And sometimes, sometimes people think that uh, the object is to overcome the ego. But you know, without an ego, you'd be in miserable shape. You know, you, you, you'd be a disaster. You'd, somebody have to take care of you because you wouldn't be able to function. You wouldn't be able to take care of yourself in terms of meaning your body and your psychophysical entity could not take care of itself without an ego. But and so instead, you know, psychologists would try to tell you will develop a healthy ego, and a Buddha would tell you develop a healthy ego, but don't believe in it. Mm-hmm. Don't believe that it's not. Right. It's like be, a process. Don't don't don't, don't become entrapped by it because when you believe in its substantial independent reality, mm-hmm. then immediately there springs into existence a logic of craving, desire, and aversion, and that logic drives all of the behaviors that uh, are responsible for our suffering and for the suffering and the suffering that we cause to others. Hmm. I don't know whether ultimately it's kind of about holding both those things in mind at the same time somehow or something. Or maybe that, maybe that is what you mean by recognizing that it's a fiction. You know? Maybe that's no, a more different like, way of saying the same premise. It's more like allowing... Allowing the mind to function in a wholesome way. It's just like conditioning your body to work in a, to function in a wholesome way. 
feeding it, caring for it, physical training, adequate rest, everything else, and then it will function in a proper and appropriate way. And at the same time, it doesn't need to go around hitting over the pe- other people <coughs> over the head with rocks. But that's interesting because you train your like taste buds and stuff by what you eat. If you eat good food, you, you, you essentially train yourself to like good food. Because I found that to be true. I don't know. I, I haven't found. I, I find a whole lot of people, even myself, to agree. I, I, I've trained myself to like a lot of things that aren't very really good for me. Right, right, but it does change. And I'm just curious. It's like, wow, maybe the mind's like that too. And there's an analogy that you can use. Well, that, and that's the thing. <laughs> you, you can train you, the mind to like The wonderful thing about the it. mind is that it's, it's entirely trainable, or at least the human mind. The human mind is trainable. We don't have to, you know, just because, uh, just because this is what's been happening up to now, it doesn't have to continue that way. That's exactly the whole wonderful thing about it. So, <laughs> see, it, it's happened again, you know. I get started on something and, and I just keep going. So, um, any last questions? I, yeah, I think we'll draw our discussion to a close. And, um, hopefully, you found some of these uh, ideas useful. <laughs> Interesting, you didn't mean to say I was crazy about having different realities. What's that? <laughs> when we were talking about realities, and I'm like, well, you know, it's been time, so I had to say, yeah, wait a minute, this is my experience, and it's different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that it wasn't crazy because somebody didn't believe me. <laughs> that this was my experience, or that it was different than what people thought it should be, or then yep. whatever. You have a right to your personal reality, absolutely. But... Uh, but it is just an experience. That's the yeah. important thing to remember. But, but, God, but your ability to function well in the world relies, too, on the fact that uh, your personal reality has some reasonable degree of overlap of, of others that you're with. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be too different or there's going to be reasonable. problems. 